Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wall. Today is my response episode to the 11th episode of Star Trek Discovery's fourth season, titled Rosetta. As always, I do three segments in these short response episodes, Think, Feel, and Question. And as always, we do not shy away from spoilers here, so please make sure you watch Rosetta before continuing on. Think. You know, Rosetta was one of those special episodes of Star Trek that I think we'll be returning to again and again here on Strange New Worlds, because it was so chock-full of fascinating science and science fiction concepts. I can already feel it beginning to reshape large portions of my Astrobiology of Star Trek talk, which I'll deliver at Star Trek Mission Chicago next month in April— and I hope to see some of you there. But getting back to this episode, one of the first things that really popped out to me about Rosetta was the planet that the crew ventures to. The episode is titled Rosetta because Captain Burnham wants to find some way of communicating with the DMA's creators, whom we only know by their designation, the 10C. So Burnham takes an away team down to the surface of this rocky planet that the 10C used to inhabit, back when the planet was a gas giant. Apparently, through a series of asteroid impacts, this puffy, gassy world lost most of its atmosphere, leaving behind a roughly Earth-sized chunk of rock. I loved this. And as I sat down to type out my thoughts on this very subject, I realized, you know what? There's someone I know who is way more qualified to talk about this subject than I am. So let me introduce you to Dr. Anjali Piet. Anjali and I are part of the same cohort of Carnegie Postdoctoral Fellows. We both started here at the Carnegie Earth and Planets Laboratory last October. She received her PhD in astronomy from the University of Cambridge and studies, you guessed it, exoplanet atmospheres. So for today's Think segment, Anjali and I sat down for a conversation about the 10 C's former homeworld outside on a beautiful, sunny day in Washington, D.C. So last week, the planet that the USS Discovery visits used to be a gas giant, but is no longer a gas giant. And its thick atmosphere has apparently been eroded away, leaving behind a rocky core that the crew can go and take a shuttle down to land on, walk around on, and explore. So my first question for you, Anjali, is would we expect a gas giant to have a roughly Earth-sized, rocky, solid core hiding in its interior? Yeah, that's, that's a pretty decent assumption. And the actual size of the core that you would expect kind of depends on what kind of giant planet uh, it was to begin with. So 
for a giant planet the size of Jupiter, for example, uh, so that's bigger than some of the other gassy planets that we know of, for that you need a certain size of rocky core to be able to accrete all of the gas that goes on, on top. And that critical mass depends on a lot of things. A number that's often quoted is like 10 Earth masses. Mm, that's roughly. pretty big. Well, yeah, so that would be bigger than Earth. Um, you wouldn't have a fun rocky. time walking around on that. Yeah, the gravity <laughs> would be huge. <laughs> so they seem to be doing okay on this planet. Yeah, they do. So maybe it's not like quite that big. Um, but if you had, say, more of a mini Neptune, so that's a planet that's more in between the size of Earth and Neptune, that doesn't have as big of an atmosphere as a planet like Jupiter. So in that case, the rocky core could be more comparable to an Earth-like planet. And we see evidence of that in the fact that we see lots of uh, small rocky planets and also this other family of slightly bigger planets that we call mini-Neptunes. And they might be related in the sense that those smaller rocky planets might be the cores that are left behind once you remove the atmosphere of the mini-Neptunes. Yeah, so um, we almost see like this graveyard of mini-Neptunes yeah. in these small, yeah. small-ish rocky planets. Exactly, exactly. So that, that's kind of telling us that, okay, yeah, that kind of core is plausible for those slightly bigger planets. So I know in the astronomy community, there are these words that are thrown around where we append some kind of descriptor to the name of a planet in our solar <laughs> system. So we have, you said, mini Neptunes. There are also yeah. super Earths. There are hot Jupiters. You know? <laughs> it's, it's like we don't have any creativity yeah. in astronomy. We just like say it's like this planet that we know of in our backyard, but slightly exactly. different. Um, yeah. So when you say mini Neptune, mm. uh, tell me a little bit more about what I should be imagining in my head. Sure. So mini Neptunes and super Earths, which you just mentioned, are perhaps kind of overlapping, um, to a certain extent overlapping descriptions of the two, but often uh, we class super Earths as planets that are more likely to be rocky with a, a sort of thinner atmosphere, a little bit like a, a bigger version of Earth. Whereas a, for a mini Neptune, we would normally imagine a planet with a hydrogen-rich atmosphere, so a little bit like the atmosphere of Neptune or Uranus, but scaled down in size. So this sort of big gassy atmosphere. And so what we're hypothesizing here is that the planet that the Discovery crew goes to in this episode probably was something on the size of a mini Neptune rather than a Jupiter-sized mm. planet, or else the core that they go down to wouldn't be, you know, roughly Earth-sized. Yeah, that would make sense, I think, yeah. And in terms of losing the atmosphere as well, that's a lot less gas to get rid of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hard to get that rid of sense. all the gas that yeah. Jupiter has, yeah. uh, but it's an easier prospect for yeah. Yeah, a, a smaller gas giant. Exactly, yeah. Um, so in terms of processes that can erode away a whole bunch of hydrogen and helium from a gas giant atmosphere, uh, it's said that for this particular planet in the Star Trek episode, a series of collisions with massive asteroids did that. When I heard those words, I immediately had doubts. Um, it sounds a little bit far-fetched. What do you think, Anjali? Could a series of asteroids do it? So I agree that it would be tricky, right? Because you would need a lot of asteroids and you need to aim them right as well. Because if you just throw an asteroid at a you know, planet with a thick atmosphere like that, a lot of them are going to fall into the planet, right? They're not uh -huh. going to you know, expel gas. Uh, so that that would maybe need a very specific scenario. <laughs> maybe if they're like military uh, targeted asteroids or something. I um, but I mean, in terms of collisions, certainly you can strip an atmosphere if you have two planets colliding. That's possible. Although in this particular case, if you collided a couple of planets, I feel like maybe you wouldn't see the fossils of 
you know, the yeah. the alien race that lived on that planet on right. the surface. That would probably be more disruptive. <laughs> uh, so that that's maybe not the best uh, <laughs> the best theory for this case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, when I heard that, oh, it was a bunch of asteroids that did this, I thought, wait, but aren't asteroids colliding into each other and into planets just the way that planets grow? <laughs> like it, yeah, yeah, exactly. You're more likely to hit... The, you know, for, it's more likely that the asteroid will coalesce with the planet than skim the atmosphere, right? Which yeah. is why you would have to either have so many asteroids that just by luck you have enough that skim the atmosphere yeah. or target them in some way. It brings up a really great point that maybe the next episode that we see we'll find out that somebody targeted this planet Ooh, with a bunch yeah. of asteroids. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only yeah. way I can think of it happening. Because yeah. yeah. otherwise it's like you're trying to like evaporate an ocean by skipping rocks into it. It's like that's not yeah. going to happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're going to need a lot of them and they, they would have to be pretty big I guess if you want to <laughs> chip away significantly. So all this said there are natural processes that we think in this universe are powerful enough to actually erode the atmospheres of giant planets. So um, you hinted at this already, but what exactly is the evidence that such atmospheric erosion actually happens? And what are the leading hypotheses for how? Mm. So I mentioned before these super-Earths and mini-Neptunes, which we've already detected thousands of exoplanets. And we don't have any super-Earths or mini-Neptunes in the solar system, which is kind of cool. We discovered something new. But then actually... Not only are they something new, but they're the most common type of exoplanet that we see around other stars. So I think that's amazing. (laughs) That's really cool. But then when you look more closely, within these sort of in-between sized exoplanets, you see broadly two different families. One of them, as I sort of hinted at before, are what we might call super-Earths, which have slightly smaller radii and are typically slightly closer to their stars. And the other family are what we call mini-Neptunes, which are a bit bigger and typically a little bit further away from their stars. And you have this kind of gap in between. For intermediate radii, there are fewer observed planets, which is kind of weird. Hmm. And so one way to explain this distribution is to say, well, okay, what if the smaller planets used to look the same as the larger ones that are further out, but they just lost their atmospheres? Hmm. And so the narrative could be that the slightly larger mini-Neptunes have held on to their atmosphere, but that once you start to lose it, you you totally lose the atmosphere. Yeah. It's really quick, and, and you get rid of the whole atmosphere and end up as the rocky planet. And it's difficult to hold on to an intermediate amount, hence why there aren't intermediate radii between those two families. So it's one or the other. You either yeah. lose your whole atmosphere and become a rocky terrestrial planet, yeah. or you hang on to all of it and you're still Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's like runaway loss. Um, and so uh, two of the, the main theories that can explain this distribution in, t- in terms of uh, atmospheric mass loss are core-powered mass loss and photoevaporative mass loss. Chances are that many different theories actually play into this together, but core-powered mass loss is basically where the planet is, is quite hot when it forms because it's accreted all of this material very recently, and that heat can actually blow off some of the layers of the atmosphere because it's Uh. so hot it's trying to cool down uh, and you can lose uh, a lot of that uh, hydrogen rich atmosphere in this theory you actually are likely to keep a very thin layer of of hydrogen at the end but that could be lost as well by photoevaporative mass loss which by itself 
can explain the loss of a whole atmosphere because you basically have very high energy irradiation from the star, so X-rays and UV rays, uh, which are sun emits as well, uh, and all these other host stars. And that high energy irradiation can hit the molecules at the top of the atmosphere and give them enough energy that they're able to escape the gravitational field of the planet. And that way you kind of boil off (laughs) the top of the atmosphere bit by bit. And actually, you can observe that, for example, for giant planets. This this happens to bigger, you know, hot Jupiters uh, that we mentioned before have this as well. It's just that they're so big that they can't lose the whole atmosphere. There's too much of it. Ah. But you can see, for example, hydrogen escaping from these atmospheres. So this is something that has been observed. And yeah, those are are two ways of carving the, the radius gap, as it's commonly known. So just to recap, for my understanding, it's either the heat of the core that is doing it and, and blowing off the atmosphere, or it is the incident radiation from the star that's doing it. Exactly. And yeah. it sounds like this happens mostly to younger planets. Is that true? Well, certainly the core-powered mass loss is something that's a result of the heat that's residual from the formation, mm. so that would be earlier on. The photoreactive mass loss is something that, that can happen over time, but once you've lost the atmosphere, then it's gone, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, that will happen early on in, in the planet's life, right. unless you have such a big atmosphere that it continues to go on uh, for, you know, for millions yeah. and billions of years. So most likely those two didn't really happen to this planet, because this planet presumably some kind of life emerged on it and then evolved on it and it spent a long time with its hydrogen helium atmosphere and so you know the asteroid scenario where somebody's aimed asteroids at it sounds more plausible who would do such a thing yeah yeah Yeah. i was doing some googling earlier and i actually found this article that, that was published in 2020 i think they found the core of a giant planet uh, orbiting the star i think toi 849 if i remember that correctly <laughs> and in that case it's the core this like remaining core is about like 39 earth masses so it's like much Ooh. bigger than what we're talking about here yeah. uh, but i thought it was really interesting and in that case it could have lost its atmosphere through a, a giant planet collision wow so that's that's kind of cool that something of this nature really exists. Yeah, um, absolutely. That's a little bit different. <laughs> <laughs> Two planets smashing into one another. I would yeah. not want to be on either one of those yeah. at the time. Yeah, I think even the fossils would be destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, so when the crew goes down to this core, this eroded core of the uh, giant planet, there is somewhat of an atmosphere. It's wispy and dusty, but it's not breathable. They have to wear mm. spacesuits. So with this kind of atmosphere, be consistent with what we would expect there to be on an eroded core. Yeah, um, so there are loads of fun possibilities for the kinds of atmospheres you can get on these rocky planets. Um, Because basically, once you get rid of the primordial hydrogen-rich atmosphere, the gas that comes out of the interior, that comes out of the rock, uh, is what forms the new atmosphere. Mm. You could also accrete some new material if you know if you have some as- more asteroids. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, you know, different chemical reactions and different uh, effects can happen to that gas when it comes out. So, the atmosphere that you're going to get will depend on what type of rock the planet is made from. Ah, interesting. Uh, so, for example, on Earth, we know that around volcanoes you get gases like CO2 and, and sulfur compounds coming out. So. I could imagine maybe on this planet that there are these volcanic gaseous emissions creating this really toxic atmosphere, uh, yeah. <laughs> potentially. Um, but it really depends on the rock. 
You can also get interesting photochemical products. So basically the X-rays and UV rays from the star, which could help you to lose the atmosphere potentially, they can break up molecules. So if you had, say, a steam atmosphere at some point, you could break it up, get rid of the hydrogen and be left with a super oxygen-rich atmosphere that I guess... I guess oxygen would be good for the, the people to breathe, but maybe you're not if there's too much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, lots of different uh, possibilities. But given that we're probably quite sensitive and breathable specifically uh, refers to something like nitrogen rich with just the right amount of oxygen, chances are it's, it's not going to be breathable. Yeah, yeah, great. So good job, Star Trek. I'm glad yeah. the producers put our heroes into spacesuits yes, for this one. Indeed. Good decision. <laughs> yes. um, so my last question for you is rather speculative, and it has to do with what they find on the planet. They find the remains of a long dead civilization that was very truly alien to anything that we've ever seen in Star Trek. Apparently, these life forms made their living in the atmosphere of the gas giant before the atmosphere was eroded and stripped away into space. I realize that we have very little idea if life can exist in gas giant atmospheres, but do you have any thoughts on the idea of atmospheric life? So I think as a concept, I think it's a good idea, right? So I think there's a difference between the different sizes of life that maybe could exist in atmospheres. So obviously in this episode, it's maybe uh, very, very much macroscopic, oh, yeah. <laughs> like giant uh, forms of life. And that could be a bit more challenging. But certainly microbial life in the atmosphere is possible. I mean, it, it exists in Earth's clouds. Um, it's been theorized in you know, many other planets as well. And why not, right? I think if there's anything we've learned from life on Earth, it's that it's unpredictable, right? <laughs> and exoplanets are also really unpredictable. So if you put the two together, <laughs> we can find anything out there. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's entirely possible. So thinking about the larger forms of life in an atmosphere, it's quite fun, I guess. Um, I suppose if it has to stay floating in the atmosphere, you need to think about how to remain buoyant. I mean, one way that organisms could float is using convection currents. But obviously, if the atmosphere at a certain altitude, wherever they're living, isn't dense enough, isn't viscous enough, they might have to propel themselves or whatever. And to do that, they would have to have enough energy and be able to metabolize that. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't want to rule it out, <laughs> but it's certainly a little bit more uh, out of the comfort zone of what we know about on Earth. But... Yeah, why not, right? <laughs> I like this idea, too. Yeah, so many possibilities. <laughs> well, thanks for joining me on Strange New Worlds. Thank you so much for having me. This yeah. has been so fun. <laughs> feel. This episode made me feel ambitious. Let me explain. As the away team explores this strange new world, they become infected with a previously unknown hydrocarbon compound that causes them to hallucinate and feel whatever the 10C had felt at the time of their world's demise. Later, they discover another novel hydrocarbon that elicited the emotion of love. These chemicals were the Rosetta Stone that Captain Burnham was seeking. But why were these chemicals able to pass through their spacesuits and affect the away team's biology? 
Let's revisit the moment that Burnham and Detmer solved this mystery. The hydrocarbons that you analyzed earlier, they weren't found in any of the Federation databases, so maybe our suits wouldn't know how to block them. An unknown substance could get through if the structure was unusual enough. Here, let me recalibrate the programmable matter filtering system. There. So glad you were paying attention in those EV trainings. <laughs> so it turns out that these hydrocarbons were completely new molecules, and the suits didn't know how to block them. This problem echoes a problem that I've been thinking about a lot in my own research, the idea of an agnostic biosignature. Now, a biosignature is just something that is indicative of life. But alien life may use completely different molecules than life on Earth does. So how might we recognize that those molecules came from something alive if they are unlike anything we've ever seen before? An agnostic biosignature is something, an attribute maybe, or a pattern, that is universal to life everywhere, or at least not specific to life as we know it here on Earth. If we aren't equipped to look for agnostic biosignatures, we might imagine going out into space and encountering all kinds of evidence for extraterrestrial life, but those clues would slip through our fingertips unnoticed, just as the 10 C's hydrocarbons slipped through the away team's spacesuit filters. So watching this episode made me feel motivated to get back to work. <laughs> okay, maybe that's not the best outcome of a Star Trek episode, which I watch in my leisure time to help me relax. But still, this is why Star Trek is so inspiring to me. And now, my question. Upon scanning one of the alien relics, Dr. Kolber proclaims, Captain, over here. These pillars contain traces of what I presume is their DNA. It matches the bones outside, but based on the differences in methylation profiles, the DNA inside of here would have belonged to infants. This must be a cocoon of some kind. The key term here that I want to zero in on is methylation profiles. I happen to know that methylation is a mode of epigenetic modification, a key concept in Season 3 of Star Trek Discovery. So my question today is, was this detail due to a certain biology professor at Duke University? and Star Trek science consultant, Dr. Mohammed Noor? <laughs> Maybe I'll just have to ask him myself on a future episode of Strange New Worlds. That's a wrap for today. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening. And until next time, see you out there. Thank you.
Uh-huh. Yeah. How, how many years has it been that you've been doing it? It's been almost five years wow. now. Yeah, I started it in 2017. It was in that weird time in grad school where I was a little bit disillusioned with everything, but mm-hmm. I saw the end in sight, you know, mm-hmm. for like graduation. And yeah. I'm like, they can't kick me out now. They can't fail me <laughs> yeah. now. I'm just going to do whatever I want. I'm going to start a yeah. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that.